0: Let's get to Kojo because I haven't spoken to him in ages and it's always good to have him on the show. Uh, So Kojo has got a new book out and we remember him from his days as an editor of many of the magazines that we love and uh, Kojo before he is with us now this morning to talk about his new book, which is called Listen to Your Footsteps. But first, let's catch up with you. How are you Kojo? How are things going? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Good, man. You know, the first thing anyone asks anybody these days is, have you had COVID?
1: No, fortunately, I have not. Oh, thank God. All right. Yeah, then we don't have to talk and, about that. And I'm, I'm really trying to keep it that way. Thank
0: God. But, uh, right. I've,
1: been, I've been living a lockdown for about five years. So, I mean, hopefully that, hopefully that helps.
0: <laughs> yeah. Listen, for, for people who are introverted or people who uh, are slightly misanthropic, this, is, uh, this has been a great time. So, what have you been doing during your lockdown? You've been writing books. Uh, tell us about what you've been up to.
1: My life? Especially that first like six months, my routine in my life didn't really change. I mean, I, I work from home. Mm-hmm. Um It's getting the kids to school in the morning. Um, right. During lockdown, it was getting them set up in front of whatever device it was that they were, they were using to study. And then, yeah, just kind of looking for work, doing work when it came in, freelancing. And then yeah, writing the book. But I mean, like my routine literally is still the same.
0: Well, that sounds very, uh, to, to you, like no gear change at all. Very, very easy. This has been a, a, a very pleasant experience. So we were talking just a little while ago about like, all the changes that have happened in everyone else's lives. And um, we were just joking because they're all these people who Photoshop themselves on social media all the time. Uh, Gillian and Sia were saying that there are, are suddenly male makeup products. Now, I know you're not in the magazine business anymore, but uh, yeah. do, do you think that's a growing thing? I mean, you, you, this, is, this used to be your wheelhouse of kind of maintaining an, an eye, keeping an eye on trends, uh, watching what was going on with, uh, w- you know, with men, with kind of what men are interested in, grooming, um, dating, mm. all that kind of thing. Is this something that's at, at all picked up in South Africa or are we just on a, on a tangent?
1: I don't know, like it's, I, I mean, I've seen makeup products and the first, you know, the first time I actually went to a launch Mm-hmm. It must be like two thousand fourteen I went to a launch and and they had makeup product, makeup products for men um i 'm kind of i 'm neither here nor there about it like I personally don 't think I need makeup um, and you know if somebody else wants to wear makeup i 'll believe for them but you know uh these these things kind of they kind of come and go yeah um, and i i don 't think they, they Things like this are not necessarily the things that are going to become mainstream, um, and and the debate and the conversation around them usually just kind of belies whatever other prejudices or whatever other perspectives mm. that we may have. Um, and I think, think they're more they more they more important things in the world to worry about. I mean, I, yeah, I saw it, yesterday, I, I saw I, yesterday there was this whole conversation about um, I think Rich Nisi in a skirt hmm. um, and pictures of him in a skirt, and now it's its discussions around masculinity and what it means and right. it's like well, actually you know what? I've got I've got bigger fish you know I've got right. bigger things to worry yeah. about than than you know than who's who's deciding what they're comfortable
0: with well i mean preach there is something to it south africans we we have um probably some, some very odd ideas of what masculinity is considering the kind of state that our society's in. And also the way that we have, um, you know, an outrageous level of abuse in, in society. That's no doubt due to the fact that men are not living up to any kind of standard. And if we have standards, they're probably the wrong ones. But it is interesting that we live in a country too, where people, if um, someone wears something, like you talk about Richie Nisi wearing a skirt, or if someone puts on makeup and they're a guy, then that, that gets looked at askance in other countries that might not be such a big deal.
1: Yeah, because I mean, there's, there, there's so much like, in reality, there's kind of so much that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree, like, like you're saying this, this idea of masculinity, um, and there's a clinical psychologist I talked to some, some years back and he kind of shaped a lot of my thinking and he talked about masculinities mm-hmm. as a plural, mm-hmm. um, and he, talk, he talked about, you know, to a certain extent, it's kind of, it's performative. Right. Um, in terms of, like, we, we manifest, like, different feminities or masculinities. Uh, and, and the problem is that everything, all of that is tied to kind of, like, a particular role, um, a particular thing that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and as, as our society has shifted, kind of, we haven't shifted with that thinking. Um, you know, so as a man, if I'm not bringing home the bacon, um, you know, if I'm not bringing home the bacon, then I'm less than, yeah. meanwhile, meanwhile, we have like hectic unemployment, mm-hmm. the, even, even just the employment landscape, like totally changed from, let's say pre 94 till today. Um, and yeah, I mean, it is this whole thing of, I, I, I am very much a you know, focus on what I can control um, right. and kind of live my li- live my own life to the best of my ability. And if the way somebody else is living their life is not destructive and doesn't impede on my life, um, you know, like good for them. Like, well, And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of been my approach. So, so because of that, I, yeah, I, I don't really, you don't get wrapped I don't really up engage with a, yeah, really a lot of this stuff. Because I've been in the media, I kind of mm-hmm. I watch it and I watch the conversations. But yeah.
0: You you can you can observe rather than having to get involved. So listen, this brings Absolutely. us this brings us to your book and um I'm I'm really interested, I'm sure Gillian CR too. First of all, what decided what what made you decide to to write a book? And and it's obviously a, a you know this is this is drawing on your own experiences, so it's semi autobiographical. I mean, it, it's a bunch of essays where you are basically speaking as a son, a father, a husband, a brother, and someone who's committed to kind of sorting themselves out in the world. Yeah, which is, I suppose, all of those are things that that many of us go through, and and that many of us would like to to put down in writing. It's a therapeutic exercise, first of all. It's, it's cathartic. But what was the, the main motivation for for actually getting it done? Because all of us have a book in our heads. Very few of us actually end, end up writing them down.
1: So look, my first book, I started it in 2012 when I was actually still a Destiny Man. Right. Um, and, and it was around fatherhood. So it was, it was after my son was born, I started kind of scribbling stuff and, 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 and reflecting on, on that journey um and and i and i never actually i never got around to finishing just because of time i mean i was in the magazine i was busy i was doing you know kind of running around doing a lot of things Mm -hmm. and 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 so I've, i've kind of i've i do believe i you know i did believe that i had a book in me and i write every day i mean i continue to write every day because that's my work right um and and then i so, about a year and a half ago, I actually just started writing you know putting these thoughts down as little essays, little reflections, uh, because I also journal every morning, so the first thing I do in the mornings is, is I do morning pages, so I journal for like three pages uh, before before I do anything else, and I started kind of building a little collection of these you know some long some short these these essays and these reflections and and reached out, you know, reached out to Pan Macmillan, um, who I'd, I'd had, a, I had a relationship with, and I'd been kind of conversating with them before
0: to go. But didn't you um, have because um, uh, you, you've, you've published two books of poetry before this as well? So it's not as if you're new to the idea of publishing.
1: Yeah, but that feels weird because I mean, like I self-published. My father paid for the printing oh, okay. of the books. I put, I put, I put the things together. It, it didn't feel. Yeah, it didn't feel it didn't feel like real publishing. Okay. I had I had a, I had a strange form of imposter syndrome when it came to actually being an author. <laughs> you know, friends would say, You've been you've published your own books. And I'm like, Yeah, but you know, like my father said, Why don't you publish a book of poetry? And I'm like, I don't have money. He says, Well, I'll pay for the printing. So, <laughs> like, okay, cool, then I'll put up put will put, put a book together. Like, you know, I know enough people, I know photographers. A friend of mine took, you know, took a picture of the cover. I I, you know, compiled the poems, edited them, went to a publisher and said, hey, listen, I've got this book, how much? And they told me and I gave them the book and the cover mm-hmm. and then they gave me
0: 500 copies later. Yeah. Okay, well, it counts. I mean, these days, self-publishing is...
2: Actually- and you have a great relationship with your dad. I mean, let's count our blessings, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Now- yeah, my father, my, my father was my main and only parent
0: from yeah' you which is great your mum died when you were when you were very young, and uh, you talk about yeah. that in the book. you talk about being raised only by your dad and kind of how you formed your identity around that now it's a different story to most people who you know there's so many people in South Africa raised by single mums um so mm-hmm. I think that alone is is an interesting take on things which we haven't heard more than, than, than and we, we certainly haven't heard as much as, as we have from single mums or from kids who've been raised by single mums. So it would be interesting to compare the experiences. And then also living as an immigrant, um, because you are of German and Ghanaian extraction. You lived in Lesotho for a long time. You, you, you're South mm-hmm. African now. And all of that must have been an interesting way to shape the character that you are, because there's no doubt that you you know, you've really made an impact in the media world. You've you've been one of those people whose name is well known, and you're one of those people who's produced some great stuff. And I'm just interested in where you think the major influences in your life might have come from.
1: Um, I mean, as a starting point, my father, mm. and and so some of these things. I mean, the interesting thing is, if I, if for example I'd stayed in the I do wonder whether I'd have been able to or I'd have written. This book this way, uh, because moving to South Africa and and the challenges and the journey of this country um, has forced me to you know to, to really look at certain things. Um, you know, when I was growing up in Lesotho, I was my father's son. My father was well known in the society. It was a small, you know, it's a, obviously a smaller kind of society and smaller city than than you know johannesburg Mm. and i was was my father's son and i was you know my younger brother and sister's older brother Um, or i was the guy who went to that school who was interested in these things that they you know did that or went to these parties or hung out with that group of people Um, and it's it's in coming to south africa where you know all of a sudden um i'm having conversations around. Just because I have a particular complexion, hair texture does doesn't mean that I have to be coloured, um, and what that means for identity, um, you know. And
0: this is also, I mean, I'm This is such yeah? a this is such a prickly subject, but I I love getting into it because what certain people regard as their coloured identity, especially here in South Africa, is so different to what other people think of when they think of their of their coloured identity. I mean, you know, in America they say mixed race. They would never use the word colored because it's actually a slur. Um, You've got people who have uh, a white parent and a black parent. You have people who have two colored parents. You have people who have a mixture of those different things. And they all see each other in different ways. Um, And they see themselves in different ways. And there isn't really a straightforward colored identity, is there, Kojo?
1: I think there is. Um, And I say that because, because within a South African context, I view coloured as a, let's call it an ethnic group, in the same way that yeah. you'd have that you'd have Zulu, Kosa, Soto, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, the the challenge becomes when you come from outside. So yeah. so within a South African within a South African context, there is an ethnic group that is coloured. That's that's kind of that's come, kind of my view, and it took me a while to kind of get to that point to make sense of it outside of South Africa in the U S the reason why colored is considered a slur is historical. And you have to look at it contextual. Um, you know, you went from, you went from, you know, um, colored Negro, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. there's that journey, there's that journey and there's that very specific context. Um, so you have people like me, for example, who, let's say I'm biracial, depending on where you are in the world, I'm biracial, I'm mixed race. Yeah. Um, and, and from a, let's call it an ethnicity or a heritage perspective, like I'm operating with Ghanaian and German, that's mm. kind of my heritage. And that, that influences, you talk about influences that also influences kind of my version of culture, uh, my, sure. you know, how, how I view the world, my ritual, et cetera. Mm. Um, the problem. the the challenge becomes and the challenge I had when I came to South Africa is that that's tied to race as opposed to culture as opposed to as opposed to heritage or culture Mm. right Um, and and in South Africa I found that even with you know even with, with say black there was no understanding of nuance. Because you can be black, but, you know, black people are so nuanced within this country. Mm. Uh, Whereas with whites, the nuance was there. And, and I found that especially working in the media.
0: Right. So yeah, uh, the, that, that that's a fascinating yeah. thing to reflect on because you know German. I mean, South Africa apparently has the uh, the second largest or the largest German population outside of uh, of Germany in the Southern Hemisphere. They've also, you know, we we we've kind of got stereotypical ideas of what Germans are, and some of them are funny and some of them are really quite insulting. Um, but it's interesting this this idea of of culture versus race because South Africans haven't really grappled with that properly um we, yeah, we're still do you agree gilly i mean we're still dealing with race
2: i can tell you that from a, you know you talk about nuance it's interesting like i i used to think you were right that there was no understanding of nuance uh in black and only in black culture but to to in my experience of performing for audiences all over this country i learned very very quickly the hard way that there was no one seeing the nuance in my I, i'm seen as a white woman it doesn't mm. if I even when I talk about being Jewish that is now something a foreign thing that I've now introduced and there's no um there's very very few audiences that I perform for where they go oh I understand that that is a, another thing or an additional thing or a you know a new a nuanced part of the thing for the most part I think we lack an understanding of nuance in one another's races and cultures
1: and and I think also the openness to to recognize that we each have different experiences yeah uh, yeah, and, and, for sure. and, and 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 therefore there's there's no experience that's that's more valid than the next yeah um, and, and 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 for us to find our way through uh, find our way through this is, is is to open ourselves up more to that. i mean i i, I really believe one of the biggest causes of ills in this world overall uh, it is a lack of empathy um, and i do write about it in the book like i i try to teach i don't know how to do it i don't know how you go about doing that mm-hmm. but it's it's it essentially you know empathy for me means means kind of recognizing the similarities um, uh, and while recognizing the diff the, the differences but also just understanding that the next person is you know is going through their experience and and taking the time to to really well try and understand what that experience is and even where you don't understand just recognizing that like i said as long as it's not destructive um as long as it um... it, it it doesn't impact on society in a particular way. Like I'm happy to let them go through that. But it's this element of understanding, um, and taking the time to try and understand.
0: Well, again, we we have limited resources in that respect, you can't take time to understand everybody. Otherwise, you're going to be so busy doing that all day, you're going to get nothing else done. And we were talking about earlier how it's impossible these days, someone gave me a useful definition a while ago, which I quite like. Empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes, which is difficult for all of us to do because we don't know what path they've walked, right? So Mm -hmm. empathy is a much harder, much more difficult mountain to climb if you truly wish to be empathetic. I almost prefer the definition for compassion, where even though you don't necessarily understand someone's life and you haven't been there every step of the way with them, you can still Make an effort to take them seriously and to appreciate their experience and to and to to sympathise in some way with what difficulties they've been through. And I think compassion and empathy are quite different things. Um, someone explained that to me once, and I'm, I'm not even sure if I've explained it properly enough here. Mm-hmm. But I, I'll... you
2: know, G- Gareth, it's interesting. Like I think we talk about words like compassion and empathy, where where we live in a society where you know you're a person who deals with the public but if you're if you're dealing one on one with people which is what we're doing most of the time mm. we don't even get to compassion and empathy because most of us can't even listen it's so and it, that thing is so critical like it's such a critical step before anything else happens you know oh somebody is telling me about their experience let me listen and not have a knee jerk you know opposite reaction to whatever that whatever's coming at me and it's for me that's changed so many things because i know myself how that compassion and the empathy has only come after i've shut my mouth
1: yeah Mm. yeah it's a good point i guess it's it's also it's also the thing of not having to have an opinion about everything Um, and sometimes (laughs) like you're saying sometimes sometimes actually just kind of listening and and taking it in and it's you know it is what it is like i you know i acknowledge i acknowledge you i've heard you Um, I don't need to now counteract you. I don't need to have a debate with you about it. It's just like, okay, well, that's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. Thank you. Or even or I, mean, either, I, either. I I I don't do it I don't do it well. But... Yeah, but me
2: either. It's hard for a lot of us.
0: But even worse are those people who they listen to you but then they try to solve your problems for you. Like um it's this patronizing idea that, oh, I know how to get out of the tussle you're in. I've got some information that you know, you immediately assume that you know more than that person and you're gonna solve their problems. That's the worst kind of
2: uh... But you know what? I've been guilty of that because I'm a person who, you know, I that is my knee jerk and I've had mm. to teach myself not to do that. So Kojo, you talk about like oh, how do we teach empathy it's like oh firstly what is your intention and it took me a long time to understand wait what do i want out of these interactions that i'm having mm. oh maybe i do want more information i want to learn something in order to listen i'm going to have to change my thing my knee-jerk thing which is what you describe i'm trying to yeah. trying to give my opinion on a subject or trying to solve a problem that's in front of me you know
1: i'm just like trying to navigate like marriage right yeah. Um, well, and, this is you talk about
0: you talk about marriage and being in, married. In the book. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, being married is is something where you know the other person is telling you something, uh, and I'm also instinctively like a problem solver. You know, so it's like this person at work is doing this, and it's like, well, actually, what you should be doing is this, and actually, and the person just wanted you to listen. They yeah. just wanted. To, they just wanted you, you. You know, they just wanted to be able to fit. Right. Um, and, and just yeah. kind of get, get stuff out of their head and off their chest. And there you are now jumping in and going, yeah, well, what you should do is like, you know, to hell with them. And you must do this and you yeah. must call your boss and you must go to HR. Like, actually, I didn't want any of that. I just wanted you to listen.
0: You, you, um, mm-hmm. you also write in the book about, uh, substance abuse, which is something I didn't know that you, you'd been through these tussles. Um, tell us yeah. a, tell us a little bit about that because that must have been difficult to write, you know especially because most people are ashamed of these things or they they haven't yet dealt with them in a significant way, or perhaps they're worried about what people will think of them or how it could impact on their career. Um, how did that come come about
1: i mean i I, I guess i'd shared the story before, just never never at this level mm. um, and and I kind of I, I, to a certain extent, I've built like a career of just telling the stuff that I've gone through. Um, mm-hmm. and I did it in, let's say, in the same, smaller ways, like it was an editor's note or it was a blog post or, or that sort of stuff. I mean, I actually even used to do, I used to do some kind of drug education, um, going around to schools and kind of talking about it. Um, and it was, it was kind of me coming to Joburg and, and, um, yeah, getting, a little caught up in let's call it the rave scene in those days. I mean, like the late the late '90s. Um, uh, but it was more around in my my inadequacies as a you know my inadequacies as a human being, and and that you know what I mean. Before before I even moved to Joburg and had you know issues with certain substances, I had problems with alcohol. Um, growing up in a small town where Where literally that's what you do. Um, you know, you, you drink you, that's the first thing that you do on a Saturday. You have your first drink around lunchtime and you know, you're just popping a can of this. And then by the time it gets darker, you, you're, you're drinking, you know, other things. Um, so it was, it was a journey. And fortunately for me, it was, it was primarily within a year. Um, and I had people around me that, that kind of, Opened me up and or at least gave me options and exposed me to the options, and and part of that journey of getting off it was starting to do that work on myself, like and starting to understand, you know, understand what you know, understand myself and understand my triggers and that sort of stuff. Um, and it's been long enough that uh, I don't know if we have. I don't know if in South Africa we have a statute of limitations. I mean we watch so many American movies, we understand <laughs> yeah. we understand their yeah. we understand their laws better than ours. Right. Uh but but I figured, you know, like twenty twenty years.
0: Yeah. Twenty different. years is a good
1: it, it's a good enough period to leave between it. but uh, yeah, I, I think, hope I think no, that's a- nobody official will come chasing
0: after me no that's um, expired you don't have to worry I, but i'm, I'm also <laughs> yeah. like i think people's attitudes to, to drugs have changed so much you said something really interesting at the beginning of this uh, explanation that you've just given for why you included it in the book you said you were dealing with some stuff and i think you know it refers back to that experiment they've done with the with the mice where they put them in a in a cage and they they give the mouse on its own they they give it uh, Cocaine in the water, and it keeps coming back. And it and it drinks only because mm-hmm. they're two are two little um, water things. And the one is just plain water, and the other one's got cocaine. And the mouse that's on its own has to have the cocaine water. And the mouse that's got company and that has you know things to play on and things to do in its cage, it drinks the normal water. They never choose the cocaine water. So mm. I I think that that's a really interesting explanation of why so many people get into it, and it's not because they just didn't have anything else to do or because they were bored or because there was peer pressure. It's usually because there's something that they don't have or that they're striving for or that they feel left out of. There's some issue that's holding them back and the drugs kind of help them to assuage any kind of feelings of insecurity. Um, And that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. Certainly.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think that's where it starts. I mean, you know, everybody goes to it, but different people go, get to it in different ways. I mean, mine mm. was literally just a Saturday afternoon. I'd been drinking and had a joint and I was ha- having a, a disagreement with a young lady, um, who, 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 whose opinion mattered mm. and I wasn't getting high and I was with a friend of mine and I was like, listen, like, okay, this is irritating now. I need, you know, I, I need something that'll just, you know, help me forget about all this stuff and, mm. you know, Numb me a little bit. I um, we can go partying after this. Right. And he gave me a he gave me a white pill and said mm-hmm. he gave me half of it and said chew on it. Yeah. I was like, okay, it tastes like crap, but I'll do that. And um, and then you know, um, two, two three hours later, I'm looking at the lights and going, oh my god, look at those lights. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's kind of uh-huh. and, and then it became kind of like part of my it became part of my lifestyle. Mm. I mean, I used to park outside. I stayed I stayed with my, my aunt slash my mum, um, in, in Hall. So I used to drive past Hyde Park and in those days, Hyde Park had these purple lights on top. Mm-hmm. If you, if, you know, some of you, some of you, some of us are old enough to remember, but it was like, Hyde Park was purple after midnight mm-hmm. and I'd actually park on the side of the road. Um, after, after having had, um, you know, a couple of ecstasy pills and maybe a couple of lines of cocaine and I'd park on the side of the road at four o'clock in the morning and just gaze at Hyde Park.
0: Oh my gosh.
2: I mean, Kojo, you think that's bad. You're talking about the early rave scene in, in yeah. Kyrgyzburg. You know, I, I developed a strong affinity for bomber jackets. It was also a lifestyle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so my bomber jacket, but, but um, I had no problem with bomber jackets because my bomber jacket was actually a Probably a decade earlier, yeah. uh, I was in Germany oh. and and I had a public enemy Bomberjack.
0: Wow! And that really was
1: that, that was like <laughs> no, my
2: pride
0: good. my pride and joy. No, and you win. I no wonder it. you got into the rave
2: scene. You had to wear that thing somewhere.
0: Yeah, no. no, no, you win. <laughs> it's not your All fault. Right. Well, the book is uh, it's out now. It it is available. You can get it online, right? So that's the best place to buy it. And it's called "Listen to Your Footsteps" by Kojo Bafoye. There's the uh, the cover. Uh, that's a good picture of you. Who took that?
1: Uh, Victor Dlamini
0: very nice, uh, very
1: good, fr- good good friend of mine, and he takes amazing pictures.
0: All right, so listen to your footsteps is the book, and uh, Kojo is doing what he does so well. He's also uh, been on on uh, Kaya FM for those people who don't know Black Magazine, Destiny Man, Afropolitan, so many things to talk about, and we've always uh, got time to talk to you. Thanks, Kojo. Nice to see you, man.
1: Thanks, you guys.
0: Congrats awesome. on see the you. book. Yeah, congrats right, on the book. You. Very good. Cheers, Kojo. There he is.
1: Cliffcentral.com.